guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is April Dunford, the author of Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It, and Love It. Her expertise is built as an executive in a series of seven successful technology startups and three global tech giants. This includes expanding a business area from launch to over 3 billion in under two years. April, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so April, what, what got you started in the marketing world or the positioning side? The answer to that question is probably dumb luck. <laughs> Honestly, like, like I didn't go to school for marketing. I have a degree in engineering. But when I finished my engineering degree, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and I ended up getting a job at a startup because my friend worked there and she put in the word for me. And the job was kind of a product management job, but it was in the marketing department. Mm. And that company ended up getting acquired by a big company based in Silicon Valley. And after the acquisition, my boss moved on and I was kind of in the right place at the right time and ended up taking over the group. And so there I was, I'm two years at engineering school. I can't even spell marketing and I'm running (laughs) this big global marketing team with a big budget and all that. And I just kind of decided that that was my jam. Like, I just thought it was really fun. I, I kind of embarked on a crash course trying to learn all the stuff I needed to do to actually do this job properly. And I had really smart people on my team and I learned a lot from them. And after a couple of years of doing that, I went back to another startup running the marketing group this time and did the same thing again. Like we, we grew really fast. We ended up getting acquired by another bigger company. I stayed on at the bigger company for a couple of years, running marketing there, and then stepped out again and did another startup. And I did that kind of rinse and repeat for like 25 years across six, seven startups. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of like I just sort of fell into it and that was the thing. And then in the last few years, I've transitioned to being more of a consultant. So I work mainly with tech companies and specifically on positioning stuff, because in my experience of doing that over and over again and launching lots of products in the market, in my experience, the positioning piece was actually really, really hard to do. And because I had done a lot of it, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm pretty qualified to be a person that could consult on this. So that's how I ended up here. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, I remember reading a few books on positioning, but no one's really dug into it like you have. What was your sort of process of figuring that all out how did it come together for you yeah like i was like you and you know like at the at the beginning i kind of thought i understood positioning and then because i didn't know anything about marketing i was taking a lot of classes and reading a lot of books and i read this book by these guys reason trout called positioning the battle for your mind and that's kind of the, the the book that if you go to marketing school they'll tell you to read that book if you're going to learn about positioning they'll tell you to read about that book and The book is fantastic. I recommend everybody read it. 
But the interesting thing about it is it does an amazing job of explaining what positioning is, why it's super important, and the amazing things that can happen when you get it right. So it does a good job of getting you really excited about positioning, but it, what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you how to do it. So <laughs> what you're supposed to do is call the guys that wrote that book because they have an agency and they're going to help you. So this is 1982 they wrote that book. Yeah. And that agency has been amazingly successful. One of the guy's daughters runs it now and yeah. those guys are long retired. And so I found that super frustrating and I thought, man, like here we have this thing. It's super fundamental for everything we do on the marketing side of the house. I get what it is, but I don't have any clue how to do it. And I was working at a crummy little startup and we couldn't afford to hire those, that agency. So I was like, well, I, you know, I can't get those guys to solve this problem for me. How am I going to solve this? So I kind of embarked on this long journey of trying to figure out how to do this. And I tried doing stuff myself. I spent a lot of time sitting in coffee shops with smart marketers saying, how do you do this stuff? You had to reposition something. How do you do it? And what I learned was that there was no sort of set agreed upon methodology, but we did sort of agree on bits and pieces of it. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to marketing school, I took a course at a university and there was a section on positioning. And what they taught in that section was how to do a positioning statement. Yeah. And a positioning statement, if you've, if you've never seen one, is kind of this mad libs fill in the blanks exercise where it says, our product is a blank. And then you fill in what the market category is. And you say, unlike blank, and you fill in who the competitors are. And you say, we provide blank. And you fill in what the value is. And so there's a bunch of blanks and you just fill it in. And so the professor was explaining and saying, this is how you do positioning. You, you do this statement. <laughs> and I was at the back of the room and I had worked on a product that we thought was like a database for personal use. Like if yeah. you, you know, had a lot of data and you wanted to crunch it on your PC, you could use that. And we repositioned it as a database that you could embed in a mobile device, like a phone or a laptop, which is really different positioning, like a really different market, really different competitors, different everything. So this guy is telling me all I have to do is write it down in a statement. And I'm like, well, that can't be right. You know what I put it in my hand and I said, well, wait, like, like, let's take one of these blanks. Like this one here, it says market category. Like we just did this thing where we thought the market category was this, but it turned out the market category was this other thing. How, are we, how do I know which one to pick? How do I know which one is better? Yeah. A- and the professor looked at me and he just said, trust me, April, you'll just know. <laughs> 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 yeah, what about all the pain to get to the answers? <laughs> right? What about, what about like, the help there? And I was like, dude, that's not how my world works. Like, you know, like nothing in my world has worked like this up until now. Like when I was in engineering, I didn't just know mechanics of deformable solids or advanced calculus. In marketing, I didn't just know how to do a segmentation. I had to learn how to do that. And I'm pretty sure I'm not just going to know this positioning thing because it's hard. And so, so that convinced me that nobody really knew how to do it. And so slowly I developed my own methodology for that, like for how you would actually, if you had a product in market and you had some customers already, how could you figure out what your value proposition should be, what your best customers should be, and what's the best market for you to position that product in that makes that value obvious to those people. And so I slowly battle tested this 
this positioning process over the course of launching 16 different products. And so I got to the point where I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this. I can do it for a product. And then when I switched into consulting, I then had to learn how to not just do it, but teach it to other people, which it turned out was really hard too. And, and so I spent a lot of time running workshops at local startup accelerators, trying to teach new companies how to do this stuff. And then after I felt comfortable with that, I started consulting one-on-one with companies on it. And then this year I wrote a book that basically is the book that I wish I had that I could have read after I read Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. I, I wanted to read the book that said, okay, now you've got the positioning fever. This is how you actually do it. <laughs> and so that's, that, that's kind of been my arc for the last few years is just kind of making this thing a methodology that I could then pass on to other people and teach them how to do it. That's awesome. Can you uh, describe this process of positioning that you sort of got, sort of worked in and sort of honed? Yeah. So here's how it works. The, if you look at the positioning statement, the positioning statement has all these blanks in it, which, which are in essence, the component pieces of positioning. So, and there are five of those. So they're, they're competitive alternatives, your unique features, the value you can deliver for customers, who you're targeting in terms of who's your best fit customer. And the last one is this idea of market category, which is kind of how do I weave context around this product? So my value is obvious to the people most likely to buy it, which, which it, it put another way, market category is kind of like, so what are you? Are you email or are you chat? Or, you know, are you like, like what the heck is this thing? It's the answer to that. And so my first idea was, okay, we can break it up into these five pieces. All I got to do is figure out what the right answer is for these five pieces. When you start digging into that, it becomes obvious that each of the pieces actually has a relationship to each other. Mm. So the, like I could pick anything like, like value. So mm. the value your product delivers to customers that is uniquely your value is really, really dependent on your product's unique features. But your product unique, product's unique features are only unique when you compare them to a competitive alternative. Mm. And then if you take things like, who's my target customer? Well, my target customer, these are the people that care the most about my value. So those things are related. And then market category is almost like, you know, saying, look, this is the market where if I position my product in here, it makes this value obvious to those people. So all these things relate to each other. So it became clear to me that the trick was going to be figuring out where to start. And where I ultimately got to was, your positioning should, should define how your product is uniquely different and valuable. And so that unique bit requires that you have to start with competitive alternatives. Mm. So basically, like, who's my competition? And then you can list that. And then you say, okay, well, what have I got that the competition doesn't have? And you can mm-hmm. list that. And, that. and those are basically a bunch of features or capabilities that your product has. Mm-hmm. And then you can map those features and capabilities to value and say, well, our product does this, but so what for the customer? And so you end up kind of defining, this is my value that those features can drive. And then how you get to your target customers is you say, well, you know, a lot of people need this value, but not everybody cares about it the same. And so what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them really, really, really put a high price on that value? 
and that's your target customers. And then the last thing is this market category thing. If this is the value and it's for these people, what do I call it? What is this thing? And where does it make the most sense? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's literally a step-by-step process where you start with competitive alternatives and you work all the way through to market category. The book digs into a whole bunch of details on that, but at a high level, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just just a, kind of a, a general sense, how does sort of your feedback loop work? Like, obviously, you're just not doing Google searches, like you're interacting with the no. market and collecting information. Now, how, how does that kind of feel, that, that back and forth through these five phases? Yeah, so the big thing that, that you need to understand to do positioning well, you need to have a certain amount of customer traction. So mm-hmm. I'll get new companies come and ask me and they'll say, oh, we haven't launched the product yet. And mm-hmm. we want to make sure we get our positioning right. And before you launch a product into market, what you have is kind of a positioning thesis. So, <laughs> you know, like you, like you built this thing with the idea that people are going to love this for this reason. And it's these kind of people that are going to love it. And you're going to take your best crack at it and you're going to put it out on the market. And, and then things are going to happen. Like customers are going to say, oh, we like this bit, but we don't like this. And you're going to find out your assumptions about some of these customers were correct and some of your assumptions were wrong. And you'll be like, gee, I thought these kind of people would like it. Turns out they hate it. But these other kind of people like it a lot. I wonder why that is, you know? And so for the first little bit, I actually think it's impossible to tighten your positioning up because you simply don't know enough about who loves your stuff and why. Mm -hmm. However, you will get to a point where you start to see patterns and you'll say, you know what, like, like companies over a certain size with this kind of problem and maybe these three or four characteristics, they seem to really love our stuff. When we pitch them, we close a deal right away. We sell lots of product. They're all happy. When we pitch other kinds of companies, it's a little harder. And so the minute you start seeing those patterns, that's a really good time to take a big step back and then work through this exercise. Now, the inputs to the exercise are really what you know about customers from doing business with them. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you want to kind of sort out your best, best customers. And when I say best, what I mean is they're using the product the way it was intended. <laughs> they love you and they love you for the right reasons. When you pitch them the first time, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. I love it. I want it. They close really fast. They didn't ask for a discount. They're not necessarily your largest customers because sometimes you'll have a big customer that frankly is not a very good fit. Mm -hmm. And I've worked at lots of companies where our best customers were not necessarily our biggest customer. But what you want to do is you want to sort out the ones that you think are a really good fit. Like the ones where you say, you know what? I wish we had a thousand customers like this. (laughs) I wish all we ever did was sell customers like this because these Mm -hmm. people are amazing. You start with them and you write them down on a list. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, what would those folks do if we didn't exist? Mm-hmm. And that's how you get to your competitive alternatives. It's not the same thing as asking, as saying, who's my competition? And a lot of people get that confused. So I'll work with startups and I'll say, who's your competition? And they'll list all these tiny little new companies that nobody's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'll say, okay, and so because we compete with all these ones, our secret sauce, our cool features, are these things. So they'll say things like it's ease of use. Like if you look at all those little companies, our thing is way easier to use because with them, it takes 14 clicks to do a thing. And with us, it only takes one. Mm. (laughs) And so ease of use is our thing. 
And and that translates to a value of saving time or money or something. And then that's, that's what we're all about. That's our value. And, but then you go and talk to the customer and you say, Hey, if these guys didn't exist, what would you do? And the customer says things like, Oh, we just put, we just use a spreadsheet. <laughs> or, or, you know, we just hire an intern. And so the competitive alternative matters because it's a starting point. And if you get that wrong, then everything downstream is wrong. So you need to understand who your best customers are. Then you need to understand the alternatives for them. Not, not in your mind, but in their mind. And so you, and you, you get that from talking to customers. Like, what were you doing before? You had the problem before you bought us. And so how were you solving the problem before? And then you can ask them directly. Like, if we went away and closed up shop, what would you do? Like, would you go to another software solution or would you go back to using a spreadsheet or hiring an intern? And so these same startups that'll say, oh, our differentiator is ease of use. You'll go talk to the customer and say, hey, if you didn't use these guys, what would you use? And they'll say things like, oh, we just hire an intern. (laughs) It's like, well, your secret sauce can't be ease of use because the intern is really easy to use. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're actually (laughs) never going to beat the intern on ease of use. Yeah. So and really what your differentiators are, the intern makes a lot of mistakes. And when a mistake happens, this is the result. Or the intern has to re-enter the data three times. And every time they do that, it takes a lot of time and there's mistakes and there's reasons why you don't want to do that. And so, so first thing you need to understand, who's my good fit customers? What are the competitive alternatives? And then you can kind of work through the process from there how you test the positioning that mm-hmm. you get at the end of this process mm-hmm. is you end up with an idea of here's my good fit customers, here's the value. And the easiest way to test it is mm-hmm. to build a sales deck that mm-hmm. reflects that positioning that sort of says, okay, here's the problem we solve. Here's how you've been solving it today. This is why we're a completely different take on this problem. This is what we do. This is the value take that sales deck and then go pitch it to some customers that are good fit customers as you defined it in your positioning thing and Mm -hmm. see, does it work better than the old positioning or not? Mm -hmm. And how I like to do this is I generally take my best sales rep. So somebody I know that's really good at selling my product, really good at working with customers. So I sort of control for salesmanship and then I train them on the new pitch and then we go out and we do some pitches together. And at the end of that, what usually happens is if it's good, the sales rep looks at me and says, I'm never pitching with anything again. Like, like I'm just using this one. You can't take it away from me. This is my new pitch deck. <laughs> or they say, sometimes you'll get in and you can see where the customer's getting a little bit lost. And they're like, so does that mean you compete with so-and-so? And you're like, oh gosh, no, they, no, no, that's not our competition. And you go tweak it a little bit and then you try it again. So, but generally, you know, it's either, it's either a hard yes or yeah. it's a, eh, we're not quite there. And we have to go back and look at our assumptions and maybe adjust some things and go out and try it again. But that's the easiest way to test it. Yeah. Rather than going and redoing all the messaging on your website or all your value propositions or every, you know, all your marketing materials, it's easier to just whip up a new sales deck. Let's go out and try it on some live customers and see, do they get it? Do they understand what we do? Do they look confused? <laughs> do they try to compare us to things that they shouldn't compare us to? And if, it, and if it works better than the old one, then that's a good signal that your new positioning works. Yeah, very cool. Now, how does all this relate to, I think I, I saw in a, 
in a presentation, you talked about styles of positioning. Yeah. So there are different styles of positioning. The way you position in a market changes a little bit depending on how mature the market is and the market landscape within that market. So in in my work, I essentially see three styles of positioning. So the first style is where you are positioning your product in an existing known market Mm -hmm. and you're positioning it in such a way that you're trying to take on the leader of the market and you want to be the leading solution for the whole market. Mm-hmm. So that's like saying I'm in the cola business mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm taking on Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the budget, but I'm taking on Coke, right? <laughs> right. And, and, it's, and that sounds crazy because it is crazy. Like uh, you, you almost never want to do this style of positioning mm-hmm. unless you're a very, very big company yourself. The only time you may want to use this style is if, the thing you're doing is kind of new and the category itself is emerging. Mm -hmm. So we see this in tech all the time where customers understand the market category. They're just not quite sure who the leader in that category is quite yet. Mm -hmm. So if you take some things like, like a good example right now is maybe smart glasses. Like we're a little bit familiar with smart glasses We understand that if I have smart glasses, it's projecting something on the glasses and there might be a camera and, you know, and we know this a little bit from Google released this Google Glass thing and it was a little controversial and it was in the news. So we understand smart glasses a bit, but if I were to ask you like, who is the leader in smart glasses? I think the average person would be like, I have no idea (laughs) who the leader in smart glasses is. And so... That's one where you could position in an existing market category and say, you know what, I'm going to own the whole thing. And we have a company here in Canada Mm -hmm. called called North, Mm -hmm. and they have a product called Focals, and Mm -hmm. they're making a run at being the category leader in the smart classes space because they're well-funded, they're super smart folks, they know what they're doing, and they're taking a run at it. Most of the time, though, if you're a brand new company, you can't do that. And What's more common is you would do style two. And style two is where you are positioning the product in an existing market category, but your goal is to not win the entire market, at least not initially. Your goal is to win a piece of the market. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, I'm cola and I'm going to take on Coke, you're going to say, no, 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 I'm, I'm cola for dogs. (laughs) (laughs) and you're like you know coke's not gonna beat me there i'm getting the benefit of the category like you know what cola is so you're like okay i get it i get what it is and you're saying but the the dog market here is really underserved so i'm gonna own dogs and then i'm gonna go with other pets and then i'm gonna own whatever and so i worked at a company that did customer relationship management software and there was a leader in that market at the time called siebel that was a Mm -hmm. two billion revenue company Mm-hmm. And when we initially launched, we tried to take on Siebel head to head with disastrous results. <laughs> and, you know, we never really closed any business. But eventually, we had a feature that was really, really interesting if you were an investment banker. Mm-hmm. And so we repositioned ourselves as CRM for investment banks. Mm-hmm. And we made a lot of money there and grew really quickly because Siebel couldn't do the thing we did in that market. And we became the sort of de facto standard for investment banks. So that's how a lot of startups get their initial growth. They go into an existing market, 
they carve out an underserved piece of that market where the leader isn't doing a very good job of meeting the needs of the sub-segment, and then you win there. Mm-hmm. The last style of positioning, the, the third style is, and you see this a lot in startups actually attempting to do this, but it, it is mm-hmm. also, it is probably the hardest one to do, mm-hmm. which is where you're essentially attempting to create a brand new market category. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, I'm email or cola or CRM, you say, I'm a flu flummer. And everybody goes, what the heck? heck is a flu flummer? <laughs> and you say, let me tell you. And then you define what that is. And yeah. so that's why it's hard because you're coming in and you're saying, look, my thing is so new, so different, so out there, no existing category can contain it. And so I'm going to define what that is. And it's a bit like Google coming out with smart glasses. You're like, what the heck? What the heck are those things? Why would anybody want those things? You know, we're like, like what? you got glasses with a camera? That sounds stupid. <laughs> and so it's very difficult because first you have to convince the market that the category deserves to exist, mm-hmm. which means at the beginning, you're kind of selling the problem instead of the solution. You're like, you're like, look, this needs to exist because, you know, without it, we're doing all this stupid stuff and wasting time and wasting money. And and what the world needs is a, is a flu flummer <laughs> to solve that problem. And so first you got to educate the market that the thing should exist. And then you have to make sure that you're positioned as a leader in that and your position as a leader there is kind of defensible. And so that, that's the third one, which is sort of like I create a category and then I position myself in that newly created category as the leader in it. The upside of that is good because you get to create the category the way you want it. So you should be easily the best solution for that. But what actually happens in reality is a lot of times the category gets created, but the company that created the category fails to take advantage of it and turn it into a market. And I think Google Glass is a good example of this. I think they did a neat job creating the category, but they never did manage to sell much of those things. And so because of it, they created the category that is now being that that gap is now being filled by other companies that are fighting out to be the leader in that category. So once the category is created, that's usually quite competitive because there's a lot of other companies seeing the opportunity like, okay, everybody knows what this thing is. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of gets now that, yeah, there, you know, there probably does deserve to be a category of solutions like that. Hard work's done. So now everybody wants to jump in and claim leadership in there. So it's hard. Mm-hmm. So those are the three. It's head to head with a market leader in an existing category. It's dominate a sub-segment of an existing category, a sub-segment that's underserved. And the second one is is by far the easiest one to do. And the last one is this, I'm going to create a brand new category, educate the market, establish it, and then establish myself as the leader in it. Mm. Yeah, you were talking about a customer relationship management tool and how you reposition. Can you describe like the transition, like that sort of change within the organization? Did it come easily or was it painful? Oh my gosh, it was so painful. Like even, even that one. And that, when I tell people that story, sometimes they look at me like, that doesn't sound like a really big change, April. Like, you, you know, it's not like you moved into a whole new market category. Like you used to say you were CRM and now you're saying you're CRM for investment banks. Like that's not all that different, but it was different. And it was particularly different if you went and talked to our investors. So yeah. our investors, our investors were not excited by this repositioning. The investors were like, look, like we wrote you a check. 
with the idea that you're going to dominate the entire CRM business and that big competitor that's the leader there, we want you to take them on and take them out. And now you're saying you're just going to go after this little bitty sub segment and that sounds really small. And how many investment banks are there? Like, can you actually turn that into a big business? That sounds small and dinky and niche mm-hmm. And we eventually convinced them because we said, look, like, A, we can't beat the big competitor anywhere else. Like in the general market, we're losing. Like we're getting way into deals and we lose. And we spend time and energy and effort trying to work a deal and then we lose. The only place where we have a distinct advantage is with the investment banks. So if we just focus on selling to them, it'd be better to just say that's who we're for. And maybe the investment banks would call us instead of us having to go find them all the time. Mm -hmm. And it would make it very clear how we're different from the market leader and that we're specialized just for this one segment. And then the way we sold it to the investors too was to say, look, like, our plan is not to just sell to investment banking forever. Mm-hmm. Like positioning is a living thing. And as the company progresses and the market changes, you'll shift the positioning too. So the way we sold it to them was we said, look, well, we're going to dominate investment banking first, and then we're going to get other departments inside the investment bank. And then we're going to go get retail banking after we're established in banking, and that'll be an easy sell. And then once we've got retail banking, that looks a lot like insurance. And we're going to use that to springboard into insurance. And then once we have insurance, well, heck, then we'll be a great big company. And then we'll take on the big market <laughs> leader because we'll be big, right? Yeah. And we can, we can beat them then. And that's how we're going to do it. And the investors eventually agreed. And, and I'll tell you, it was transformational to the business in mm-hmm. that we, it, at the beginning, it just changed the messaging and it just changed the sales pitch. But it actually ended up changing everything about the business. So Mm. we changed our pricing. Like we were always dropping our price because we couldn't win against the big competitor. So one of our main differentiators is that we were cheaper. And so we kept (laughs) dropping the price. But once we moved into investment banking, we had a real differentiator there. And customers were willing to pay more than the market leader because we had specialized functionality just for them. So we put the price way up. It changed the product roadmap because we were trying to be a better and better fit for this banking segment. And so we weren't trying to get feature parity with the leader in the overall market. We were trying to just really serve this niche market that we were trying to establish ourselves. We were just trying to serve that market really well. So it changed our roadmap. It changed the way we sold because we were just selling to bankers. And so we spent a lot of time enabling the sales team to speak banker language and having them understand what a day in the life of an investment banker looks like. So our training of the sales team changed, our our demos changed. Like we had data that looked like investment banking data and the demo that we showed in a sales call was very tailored to that. And so it kind of hit on a bunch of different things. And then once we did implement it, gosh, like the the change in the business was astronomical. Like it was like night and day. Like we So one of the biggest changes was we always before that got in a head-to-head battle with this this big market leader. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, we'd go in, we'd have a meeting with an investment banker and they'd say, oh, we're CRM for investment banks. And they'd say, well, hang on, don't you compete with those other big guys? And we'd say, oh, you know, we love those guys. (laughs) What a fantastic company. We love them so much. Look at them. So much revenue, so many customers. Oh, they're fantastic. 
and they're they're probably the world's greatest general purpose firm <laughs> out there if you're like a call center in India or a manufacturing <laughs> plant or something. But not you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something special. And then we'd show them all our special features for banking. We'd show them our demo that looks super banking. And at the end of it, they were like, yeah, why would I not buy you? And so <laughs> we got completely out of head-to-head competition with this big market leader by establishing ourselves as demonstrably different and meeting the needs better for this subsegment of the market. And so our revenue took off, like we had been limping along at about 2 million revenue for years. And then we made the switch and we went from 2 million to a little under 80 million in just under 18 months. Wow. Which was fantastic growth. And then the end of the story is that the big market leader eventually came and acquired us and they acquired us for $1.3 billion. (laughs) So, you know, our worry was, oh my gosh, we're going to focus on this little niche thing. How are we ever going to make any money? Yes. (laughs) And the reality was that was the key to unlock, to unlocking growth. And it actually getting down smaller was the key for us to actually finally getting some traction and to actually starting to get some scale. Interesting. Yeah, it's, I guess managing that fear, right? Fear when you're sort of segmenting down, you feel like your opportunities are shrinking, I guess. And totally. Some Everyone's own. like, oh my God, we're going to say no to business. Isn't that bad? And, and it's like, and the reality was we weren't saying no to any business. Like no business was coming to us. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, so people are afraid to focus on a niche because they think, oh, well, what happens if another company comes and wants our stuff? Well, by all means, we'll try to sell them. Yeah. But we're just not actively going out and trying to get into deals where we don't have a high likelihood of winning. Yes. That's all I mean. So I'm taking my scarce marketing and sales resources and I'm focusing them on the part of the market where I can actually win. That's really what you're doing. Yeah. And that's the key to everything, I think, in sales. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So you talked about positioning, but I'm always curious. If you were putting together a positioning SWAT team, who, what type of people would be on your team? Like what skill sets? Like, you know, that teams they put together to rob banks, like what your position, yeah, position yeah. SWAT team? Could well, be. so I get asked a lot, who should own positioning inside yeah. the organization? And how does that work? And the reality is that a shift in positioning is essentially a shift in business strategy. So if you look at my example of we were CRM for everybody and now we're CRM for investment banks, like I'm the marketing person. I'm not going to make that decision by myself. Are you kidding me? Like you don't think the CEO is going to have an opinion about that? The board has an opinion about it. Our investors have an opinion about it. Yeah. So in the work that I do as a consultant, I essentially have to work with the entire executive team because a shift in positioning impacts every single department. It's going to impact marketing, obviously, because it's going to impact our messaging. It's going to impact our go-to-market strategy. It's absolutely going to impact sales because it impacts which target accounts you're going to go after. It impacts how you decide if a deal is qualified or not qualified. So your salespeople need to be in the room. Your CEO is going to care. Your head of product is going to care because it's going to impact the roadmap moving forward people in customer support or customer success are going to care because it impacts how you expand in an account. And in some cases, impacts even how you service a customer. So in the work that I do, 
when we're doing a positioning exercise to examine the positioning to think about do we need to shift it or not, we generally have to have senior representation from all the groups of the company in the room. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of has to be an executive team deal. Makes sense. Okay, well, you've been doing all this stuff. At what point did it kind of really click for you? Like, was there a certain point or is it just sort of a gradual sort of uh, learning and reflecting that sort of with your career in in your sort of... Yeah, I think it was kind of gradual. I don't know. Like the positioning piece of this, this whole like, how do we actually do it? That was definitely an an evolutionary thing. Yeah. Like for for a long time, I had this idea that, okay, we're going to break positioning down into five pieces but the pieces all relate to each other. But it didn't seem to me that there was an obvious starting point. So for a long time, like, and I mean like years, three, four years, I thought that it was not an end-to-end process. It was a spiral. And you would just, you would just take your best guess at it, throw it out there. If it didn't work, you iterated on it. And then you iterated on it and you iterated on it. And so for a long time, I thought that's where it was. And then I changed my thinking on that at one point I got kind of deeply thinking about competitive alternatives and I had been reading a lot of stuff by Bob Mesta around jobs to be done, which is this kind of framework for looking at what does, what is the job that a customer hires your product to do, which got me thinking about competitive comparables. And it kind of dawned on me that you had to start there. And so then I spent a lot of time kind of experimenting on that and experimenting on the steps you would go through and how you would get that right versus messing it up. And that took a long time. And then, like I was saying before, like even when I felt after I felt like I was pretty good at doing positioning, then I got invited to go teach a class on it. And the first time I taught the class, it was a total disaster. Like, (laughs) Like I thought, oh, I'm so smart at this. And I got up and I did this big thing and I, I delivered this like two hour talk on here's how you do it and blah, 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 all this stuff. And then literally everybody in the room was like, yeah, yeah, this, this, is, really, this is really great, April. So like, is positioning the same thing as branding? And I was like, oh my gosh, nobody understood a word. Nobody understood, <laughs> a, single, nobody understood a single thing I was talking about. And so it took me, a, then I kind of embarked on this, well, okay, I know how to do it, but I can't teach anybody else. So that stinks. So then I had kind of a few years of perfecting that, like just describing what positioning is and having a good set of analogies around this is what your life looks like before. And this is what it looks like after. And this is why it's important. And then here's how you do it. So that took me a long time. So yeah, it's been this gradual process. Now I feel very happy that I have a process. It doesn't work for everyone. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. work if you don't have enough customers. I work primarily with companies that sell to businesses. So if you sell to consumers, I don't know if it works because I, I don't work over there. Mm-hmm. If you're B2C, your mileage may vary. But mm-hmm. if you're a tech company and you sell to businesses and you got enough traction that you can see some patterns in who loves you and why, I feel very comfortable that I got a methodology that'll get you to some good positioning. So mm-hmm. it feels cool to be there. But occasionally I'll get people that'll say, Hey, I'm selling makeup or something, and I'll be like, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think what you're talking about applies a lot in uh, building materials and codings and constructions as well. I, I can definitely see see the uh, the parallels there. What are some of the the habits or routines that help you stay successful? I mean, I see you on Twitter all the time. Is that one of your success secrets? 
Oh, you know what? I, I really don't think Twitter is <laughs> <laughs> like, a detriment. You know like, yeah, I probably, I, I do not have a very methodical approach to Twitter. Like, and in fact, I like, I'm very sporadic on Twitter. Like sometimes I'm sitting around in the airport and I don't feel like doing any work and I'm on Twitter a lot. And then sometimes <laughs> I'm in with clients for days and I'm not on Twitter at all. So I will say that I seem to have a quite a, a big following there. Like, I mean, not big, like hundreds of thousands of followers big, but like 25,000 followers big. But my followers are super engaged. So like I tweet yeah. stuff and they tweet back at me and that's pretty fun. Yeah. But I don't think Twitter has been much of a key to my success. <laughs> I, uh, I, <laughs> it's just more my personal entertainment. But if you look, even if you look at the methodology that I've got and like one of my sort of guiding principles in marketing in general has really been about around this idea that if you want to be successful, you got to kind of get over the idea that the thing you're selling is perfect for everybody. It's not. Mm-hmm. And, and the key to everything is really deeply understanding who are your best fit folks to go sell to. And I learned that really early in my career. And the, the first company that I worked with, I worked on a product that it looked like it was a failure. But when I talked to customers, like it was a failure for a lot of customers that bought it, but they weren't good fit customers. And it was a super success for a small handful. Mm-hmm. And once we started focusing on just selling to those folks, that was the key to everything. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's how and that business turned into a billion dollar business. And so, and that applies, I think, every product that I've ever worked on. Like once we really got this idea of discipline around segmentation and who am I really trying to sell to and why, what do they think they're going to get from buying my stuff and just really honing in on that. And that served me well, even as a consultant, because I could say yes to the makeup lady, right? (laughs) Like (laughs) she could call me and I could be like, yeah, I'm the positioning expert. I'll position your makeup thing. But there's discipline involved in saying, look, you're not my best fit. It's not where I'm going to do my best work. Where I'm going to do my best work is a B2B company, a company that sells to businesses, a company that sells something pretty technical, a company that sells something that's hard to understand. That's really the sweet spot for my stuff. And so I screen people hard when they call me. And I think that's how I've developed a reasonable reputation as a consultant because I have happy customers. And the reason I have happy customers is because the ones I'm not sure I can help them, I screen them out and I say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I send yeah. them on their way. And so that discipline, I think, comes from every company I've worked at. We got real discipline around who is it we're trying to sell to. And then even for me as a consultant, I've tried to maintain that discipline in that I don't take you on as a client unless I think you're a really, really good fit. Because I know if you're a good fit, we're going to do work together, good work together. You're going to be happy with the result. I'm going to be happy with the result. And then you're going to recommend me to other people and say good stuff about me. And that's how your reputation grows. And all good things come from that. Great. April, thank you so much. I definitely learned a lot. And I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, no problem. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone 
anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.